Oh, my word, can't you just feel their pain? The torment, the agony, resisting that, that sweet temptation, right? I think we can uh, feel their, their pain and identify with their struggle because, besides from the fact marshmallows are awesome, um, for so many of us, that, that becomes like almost a picture of what we think the Christian life is. That it's, what it's all about is this daily struggle to not give in to temptation, to root out the desire for the forbidden fruit. So we, we have this thing that sits right in front of us and we, we try not to look, we try to ignore it, but we find that it's, it's siren song just keeps calling to us, right? And so we're like, oh Lord, how long must I, must I be good? How long must I hold out here? How about if I just nibble around the edges a little bit? Will that be okay? Sometimes we're just like the little redhead girl. We don't even wait to hear all the instructions. We're just diving in full, full, full on into temptation and sin. And I, my, the point of showing that was, and, and saying all that is just, because I think we tend to view the Christian life sometimes almost exclusively in the negative. Avoid this. Stay away from, from that. In, in our world today, I, I feel like a lot of times we define good behavior by just the absence of bad behavior. And it may, not, may or may not have anything to do with goodness at all, actually. But it's hard for us to escape this mentality because we know that Scripture calls us, calls us to be a holy people. It calls us to flee temptation. It calls us to resist the devil. It says, go and sin no more. And we want to do that. But something just doesn't seem to always be work, work out for us in that way. Paul wrote that famous passage in Romans 7 that I think we can all kind of jump on board with. He, he said this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For we know that... The, for I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. See, the struggle with sin we have, this war inside of us between the spirit of God and the, and the nature of our flesh, too often, I think, feels unwinnable to us. It gets discouraging. We just, we just had Easter a couple of weeks ago, and we, we, we talk on Easter about that Christ has won this amazing victory over sin and death for us. That he, he says he, he came to give us life and that we would have it in abundance. Paul says that if we're in Christ, we're, we're new creatures, that the old things have passed away. He tells us that we've died to sin, and so if we've died to sin, how can we still live in it? But we still struggle. We still identify more with Paul's passage where we're not doing the good we know to do and not doing the, and doing the bad that we know not to do. See, and they may be big sins, they may be small ones. They may be public sins. They may be hidden and private sins. But we end up joining with Paul at the end of Romans 7 where he gets to this point and he just says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who can help me overcome this problem that I have in my life, this problem of sin? And so we, we get desperate to hear some, some message. Somebody give me some wisdom on, on how, I can, how I can win this battle, right? How to have victory over sin. And everybody kind of has an idea to throw in the ring. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, uh, he had this advice to give us. He said, uh, 
Whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer. <laughs> Do not amen for that. That, is, that advice is not sanctioned by the Southern Baptist Convention. And no one better run out to go join the Lutheran Church after this. But, uh, so as we look to, uh, to win this battle with sin, I, I feel like so many of us get, we get more or less resigned to l living less than what God intends for us. We feel defeated in our spiritual growth. We feel kind of like failures as disciples of Jesus. And so, yeah, we, we still try to go on being good little boys and girls, right? But we've pretty much decided that this victory over sin is just something for the future in heaven. Here, it's just the torture of sitting and staring at all the marshmallows that we're not supposed to eat. Too often giving in to the temptation, doing the thing we know not to do and not doing the thing that we know we should. I don't think Scripture shares our sense of defeat, though. It tells us the battle is real. It tells us it's ongoing. It tells us it will always be with us. But I really believe that Scripture offers us a pathway, if we will take it, that we can do this, begin to win the war with sin. Say that with me. Begin to win the war with sin. Say that one more time. Begin to win the war with sin. Doesn't it just feel good to say that? We're going to be in Galatians 5. You can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. Galatians is, a, is an incredible letter about the gospel of grace. Paul spends the first four chapters of Galatians kind of detailing and defending his ministry and this message of grace and the theology behind it to both Jew and Gentile. And then he turns in chapter 5, as he does in a lot of his letters, to application of that theology. This, this how, can, how are we then to live in response to this message of grace, to this gospel of grace? Merrill Tenney says this about the book of Galatians. He says, Galatians is of the utmost value to those who think of the Christian life as a succession of inhibitions rather than a continual expression of divine victories. See, what a, what, a, what, a, what, what a great and freeing thing that is. If we can see in Galatians today that our lives are not just based around a, a, just a long line of don't do this, avoid this, stay away from that. All these successive inhibitions and it's more about that we can live in divine victory. The scriptures today, I think, will remind us that when we stop living negatively with our eyes fixed on the marshmallow and we start living positively and purposefully with our eyes fixed on Christ, then the holy life that we're called to becomes much more accessible to us. The, the abundant life that he offers becomes much more of a reality for us. Because in the end, being a holy people, being able to overcome temptation is not primarily about the word behave. It's about be his. It begins with what we have in Christ and it flows out into how we live for Christ. Our identity in him informs our duty to him. So here in Galatians 5, let's start reading. Verse 1. For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will benef not benefit you at all. Again, I, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he's obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. 
For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. And then jump to verse 13. He says, you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. So here in the first half of this chapter, Paul wants us to see that if we're going to begin to win the war with sin, we've got to start here first. You must first understand your freedom. See, Paul says, hey, God has poured out his grace. God has poured out his salvation on us. And we have to, we're, we're go, I'm going to tell you how to live in response to that. But he doesn't say, so let's review the Ten Commandments. Let's look at the thou shalt nots. Let's, look, let's list out all the do's and don'ts. He says, we don't need to consistently beat ourselves over the head with the Mosaic law to get it ingrained in us. In fact, Paul would say that will, that will hurt us more than it will help us. Because in Romans 7, when he says, when I heard the law not to covet, it brought in me, produced in me coveting of every kind. Why is that? Because we know what happens when somebody tells us we can't do something, right? Don't look all innocent. You know. Some of you are out there right now going, don't you tell me not to look innocent. I mean, that's just how bad we are about it. Mark Twain says, says this in his usual irreverent way. He said, Adam was but human. This explains it all. He did not want the apple for the apple's sake. He wanted it only because it was forbidden. The mistake was in not forbidding the serpent. Then he would have eaten the serpent. Because <laughs> right? he knows, as we know, that our human nature bucks up and rebels against someone coming in with a command. See, Paul is saying here that if you want to turn this gospel of grace into daily living that God calls his people to, if you want to live lives that are holy and acceptable to him, the answer is not found in focusing on the law, which only causes us to rebel more. It's in understanding this, that you are free. You're free. He says, not only, he says not, not only understand it, he says fight for it, insist on it. There, there in verse 1, he says, don't you dare submit again to a yoke of slavery to the law. See, again in Romans 7, Paul says, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. You are free, he says. You've been released from the law. It is for freedom that Christ set us free, which is like one of those statements from the Department of Redundancy Department, right? Some of you will get that later. All right, anyway. You're set free to be free. We like that word freedom. It sounds so good, you know, land of the free and stuff. And we kind of sit up tall and straight, poke out our chest, want to paint our face blue and channel our inner Mel Gibson, William Wallace, and say, they can't take away our freedom, which is a terrible Scottish accent, but I, you, you go with me on that, all right? 
The problem, I think, sometimes is that freedom is such a big concept, and it has so many connotations to it, depending on the context in which we're talking about it and who's hearing the word, right? As Americans, we have certain freedoms that were afforded us because uh, we're citizens of the, this great country. But even the ideas about what those freedoms are and what all of that means, it's, I mean, it's constantly debated every day in our government, in our, in our citizenry, on the, those talking head shows every night where they yell at each other and won't shut up, all right? All the, so there's, there's, there's debate over that. And I think today when people hear the word freedom, people think of it as it's the maximum ability to choose whatever life I want to live and do whatever I want to do with no external restrictions or constraints. And that sounds good in theory and on paper, but I think it is a grave misconception about what freedom is. It's in America, one, but most certainly in, in the writings of Paul. See, for Paul, freedom's not about the complete autonomy to, to now live in any way we want. Paul's emphasis in Galatians is for us to understand the context and the definition of this freedom in a couple of ways. And the first is this, that our freedom is we're free from the law as the means to righteousness. All right? In our battle against sin in our life, righteousness is our goal. We talk about being justified by faith as being one of the tenets of our, our, our doctrine and our theology. Justified, we, we, we say, means declared righteous. Paul says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 2 Corinthians, Paul says, he made the one who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is our is the goal. And I don't know that we even use the term righteousness very much anymore. And maybe that's why I kind of feel like we, we've, we don't fully grasp it all the time. Because as we often do, we tend to think of everything in terms of do's and don'ts, right? We tend to make everything about behavior. And so we make righteousness a lot about what we do. Um, about how good we are. But I, I think it's less, again, it's less about behave and it's more about be his. See, righteousness for Paul is right covenant standing before God. It's right covenant standing before God. It's the status we have before him where he accepts us and says, you are right with me in this covenant. Paul tells us the Mosaic covenant, the law of God, can't be the means by which we attain a right covenant standing with God. It cannot be it because we can't keep it perfectly. Therefore, we can't find our righteousness there. So look at what Paul says in Galatians 2, earlier in this book. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And then in chapter 3, he says, for if the, if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But then here in chapter 5 again, Verse 2, he says this, Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. And again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You've fallen from grace. Paul is really, really ticked off about what's happening in the Galatian church. Some, some Jews, some, sometimes we call them Judaizers, they've come into the church and they've, they've said, Hey, you Gentiles, we, we know that you've placed your faith in Christ. That's great. We applaud that. Glad you want to be a part of our faith. 
But that's just the first step to the process. In order to gain righteousness with God, you have to add to that circumcision. Uh, ceremonial, the ceremonial law of the Jews, the dietary laws of the Jews. You have to observe our feasts and our days that we have. You have to keep the law. And Paul, Paul's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's the very antithesis of what Christ died to do. See, because this, they brought it over from the Old Testament. When a Gentile wanted to convert to the, uh, the Jewish faith in the Old Testament, that's, that's what they did. They had to submit to all the Jewish laws, do all the things that, that all good Jews do in order to be a part of that. Go through circumcision way too late in life. you know. So uh, it's just one of those things that they had to do. do. And so they're trying to move that into this new covenant, this New Testament time as well. And Paul, is, Paul says, look, if you engage in circumcision or any other Jewish thing with the law in order to gain righteousness with God, then you make a mockery of the death of Christ. The minute you go back and add one thing from the law as the means of, of being in right covenant standing with God, you are responsible for keeping every letter of the law perfectly. Don't go there. See, Paul writes in Romans 10 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law for righteousness. We no longer go there to find right covenant standing with God. Christ, through his atoning death and victorious resurrection, has fulfilled the law on our behalf. He took our sin to give us his righteousness. We got his own right standing before God. Scripture tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags, but they have now been traded for the royal robes of Christ. So we are free from the law as the means by which we attain righteousness before God. But then secondly, our freedom is defined this way, that it is freedom for love as an expression of righteousness. See, in, in verse 6 here in chapter 5, look what he says. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision accomplishes anything. It's irrelevant. What matters is faith working through love. Verse 13. You were called to be free, brothers and sisters, but don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. See, we're called to be free, Paul says, so we don't have to focus on if our efforts are good enough for us to please God. But instead, we can, instead of cautiously avoiding sin at every turn, we now get to proactively live, passionately pursuing the will of God. And the will of God, Paul says, is summed up in this one thing. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. See, Moses said, here's 10 commandments. The Pharisees said, hey, let's add 600 more. Jesus said, there's two that'll do. And Paul said, you know what? If we were just doing this one, if we were just doing this one the right way, we'd be fulfilling the whole law. See, as we, as, as, it's not, it's not a thing, though, when we're talking about loving each other, where it's, why can't we just all get along? This is not about me liking you or being nice to you, shaking your hand, nodding, pasting on our southern graces that we do on Sundays, and, and just and getting along. Loving each other the way that Christ has called us to love each other is us pouring our lives into each other with the priority of bringing out the life of Christ in each other 
and the character of Christ, in the community of Christ, for the glory of Christ, in the kingdom of Christ. See, it's freedom now to finally be everything that God has called us to be as, as his people in the world, as his community. So we're freed from the law as a means of our righteousness because Christ himself is that source of righteousness. We're freed to love as the expression of his righteousness because Christ himself is the source of that love. See, that's how we have to understand our freedom that we've been set free to have. It's understanding this first, this freedom, that then leads us to our second part of beginning to win the war with sin. The second part is this, walk in the spirit. Look at verse 16 in Galatians 5. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you certainly will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The law is not against such things. Now to those who belong to Christ Jesus have, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So we hear that phrase, walk by the Spirit. And we hear it in church and we nod our heads and we smile and we go, yeah, that sounds good, that sounds right, I, I should be doing that. But sometimes I just think we're left to wonder, what does that look like? How do I know if I'm walking in the Spirit? How does that play out in my day-to-day life? See, because as Christians, we, we, we teach that the Spirit of God dwells in us. And we're not sure about all the metaphysics of how that works out, right? But we know that there's a divine nature that's been given to us. We know that there's a voice inside of us that's the voice of God. The new covenant promises that God says, I will put my spirit in them and they will be my people. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment of all the great and glorious spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And then in Romans 8, Paul says this. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And giving life to your mortal bodies there is not in the context of final resurrection. It's in the context of living day to day in this life. So that's why here in Galatians 5, the first thing we see about walking in the Spirit is that whatever it means, it is a life that stands in opposition to the flesh. Paul draws as strong a dichotomy here as he possibly can. He says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Right? Conversely, what? If you're carrying out the desires of the flesh, you're not walking in the Spirit. 
See, one of my big struggles as I've grown up in church, and maybe a lot of you share this, was, is I, mean, I just think sometimes if the very Spirit of God dwells in the believer, his power, everything that he brings to us, if, it's really if he's really dwelling in us, why don't more Christians look like that? Why are, I'm not, and I'm not even talking about people that fall into egregious sin from time to time. I'm just talking about where are the character traits that he's described? Love, joy, peace, patience, all those things. Where are those? Why are we not farther along? Why, why are so many of our lives focused on the things of the world? that are around us and not the things of God and his, his passions and his pursuits and his, his purposes in us. And we could say, well, I mean, we know that not everybody that goes to church is, is necessarily saved, right? I mean, it, there's just some church people, there's some religious people, we're in the Bible Belt. This is, may, maybe, maybe all those people that aren't developing those characteristics are, are those people. They don't really have the Spirit of God. Well, maybe. But what if that person's me? What if I'm the one not bearing the fruit of the Spirit like I should? What if I'm the one whose life is focused on the things of this world and what it offers and not on the purposes of God through me? What if it's me? Why, why is it not working out for me? Well, I, I think it's not because there's an absence of the Spirit. It's because we choose not to walk in the Spirit. We choose to live in the flesh, to walk in the flesh. And we go, ooh, I don't, I don't live in the flesh, right? Because the flesh has such a seedy sound to it, right? I mean, we, when we hear desires of the flesh, we think a lot of things. We think of, like, we think of depraved sexual immorality, dark deeds done in dark corners somewhere where nobody, I mean, like all the, all the ugly stuff you see on Law and Order, SVU, and, and I mean, like, I mean, this is, like, this is all the stuff that, you know, it, you know we think of. But, but being in the flesh doesn't just mean those kind of things. It can be much more benign than that. It can look neutral. It can look even good. They can be good things. They're just not God things. See, flesh in Paul refers to the all-too-human way of living for oneself. And who of us would, would say that we're not guilty of that? See, so while we pat ourselves on the back a lot of times for not being bad people, perhaps we're missing the point that we're still living in the flesh as much as they are. Because our lives are focused on our agendas the passions and priorities of the material world. We're not walking in the Spirit. We're not listening for His leading. We're not seeking His kingdom first. We're not pursuing His priorities for the purpose of making His glory known in every moment of our life. See, but if we were consistently walking in the Spirit, if we were walking in God's agenda, if we were walking with our eyes on His purposes through us in the world, we'd have less and less time for the desires of the flesh. We'd have less opportunity to sit and stare at the marshmallow in front of us and desire what it offers us and too easily go back to the all too human way of living for ourselves. See, we begin to win the war with sin when we walk in the Spirit. And walking in the Spirit looks like a life not lived for itself here with the promise of heaven in the future. 
it, it's a life lived in primary pursuit of God's kingdom here and having the agenda of heaven in the present. See, to walk in the Spirit is to truly deny self, all of its concerns, all of its desires, all of our agendas. We take up our cross and we follow the purposes of Christ in us. So, walking in the Spirit is a life in opposition to the flesh, the desires of this world. Second is this, that it is in opposition to license, to this attitude of license. See, in Galatians 5, verse 17, Paul says this. He says, the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So we've got this thing where Paul says, you're not under the law, but you still don't get to do what you want. Uh, And so there's our understanding of freedom coming in play play again. We're freed from the law, not to live by what pleases us, but to live by the leading and the power of the Spirit so that we can do what pleases God. See, legalism is not just, legalism is not just the presence of law and, and standards and rules. Legalism is not just the fact that somebody says, hey, you ought not to do that. And you go, well, you're being a legalist, right? It's, legalism is not just the fact that there's a standard or a rule in place. Legalism is saying that those standards have to be kept by you so that you can gain favor with God. And, we, we, and whether you impose that on yourself or whether you impose that on other people, legalism is a vicious lie, Paul tells us, and he says you've fallen from grace if you get back into it. But our desire, so, but it, and our desire to not be legalists, in which we shouldn't be, we, too many people try to swing the pendulum over to what they think is the opposite of that, which is license. And they say, okay, well now you've you prayed your prayer, you've sealed, uh, you've sealed your eternal destination, right? You got your fire insurance. Now you can just go live any way you want to. Li- go live in the grace of God, right? There's a kind of hyper-grace teaching that they, and, and, and they would say, well, now you shouldn't go live the way you want, right? But you can But license and legalism are not opposites. They're more like fraternal twins. They don't look like each other, but they're way more closely related than you you think they are. Legalism and license are on one side of the equation. The opposite of both of those is walking in the Spirit. See, Merrill Tinney again says this. He says, Christian liberty consists not in the ability to disobey God with impunity, but in the ability to obey him spontaneously without effective hindrance. So it's not about we can now go live and do whatever we want to without fear of reprisal from God, but it means that we're free to finally do what he desires for us to do in our lives and his purposes in the world, something that the law could never accomplish in us. See, true Christian living is not void of the commands to be holy, to flee temptation, to go sin no more, to walk in newness of life, because the law itself was a revelation of God's character and his desire for how he wanted his people to display his glory in the world. See, we're free from the law as the way to get to righteousness, but we're not free from demonstrating the character that's behind the law and the transforming power of his grace and the very presence of the divine in us through his Holy Spirit. See, there's a life that reflects the glory of God and should characterize his people, and there's a life that doesn't. And in verse 19, he starts to tell us about the life that doesn't. He says, the works of the flesh are obvious, right? 
sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, and we, we go, yes, we're on board with those. But then he keeps going. And he starts running into some uncomfortable places for some of us. Strife, jealousy, selfish ambition, envy, dissension, factions. See, those are all the things that get in the way of that life of love that we've been freed to live and called to live. He says, those who practice such things, not only the first few, those who practice these things, do not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying these attitudes should never be characteristic of God's people. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not, he says. Because we've died to sin in Christ. We've been raised to newness of life. Not a better life. It's a new life. It's not new in time. It's new in kind. New in character. It's something completely different than before. Many of you are familiar with the story uh, by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. Uh, I just heard somebody told me today that Northside High School is performing it this weekend, uh, which, is, which is cool. I think it's one of the greatest stories and pictures of redemption in, in literature. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, uh, the main character is Jean Valjean, who early in his life stole a loaf of bread to feed his starving family. And he was caught, he was sent to prison, and for 19 years served in a prison labor camp. He was branded as a thief. When he was finally released, he was going to report in another part of the country to his parole officer, and on the way, he stops in a town to stay for the night. No one in the town, because of his past, no one in the town will give him food, shelter, will do anything for him, except for a local bishop who, knowing who he is and what he's done, invites him in, feeds him a good meal, offers him a bed for the night. And in their conversation over the meal, Jean Valjean kind of flippantly says, hey, in the morning I'm going to be a new man. You know, as we would say, after a good meal, a good night's rest, I'll be a new man. But the bishop heard that phrase a little bit differently. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up and he seems to forget that he's been shown grace and kindness. And he says, you know what? I still believe my past is true of me. I'm still a thief. And that's where this scene in the movie picks up that I want us to watch. Anybody there?
So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. See the picture of Christ there? Can you hear the voice of Christ in that? You no longer belong to evil. You no longer need to be branded or think of yourself as a thief or whatever has defined you in your past. You've been redeemed and you've been set free from trying to live by your own devices. The gift I've given you has ransomed your soul, bought you back from your past, and now I entrust you to God. Don't be the man you were. Be a new man. Be a new man. You've received my grace. Go live in the freedom you've been given. See, the question for us is whether or not we'll choose to live our lives in opposition to the flesh and the, all the desires of this world. Will we, will we choose to reject the idea that, oh, good, we've got grace. We can just go do whatever we want to do. And instead, will we look for ways in which we are now free to live in a way that is pleasing to God, walking in the Spirit? Because when we do, we find that this third thing will happen, that our lives will live out in demonstration of the law. See, we don't live by the letter of the law, Paul says, but we do live by the spirit of the law. See, our obligation is not to the external command that the law delivers, but the internal character that the law demands. See, we're free from the law, but God's people should be marked more than ever by the character of God. Because the, the new covenant in which we've been placed. 
When Jeremiah talked about the new covenant, he, he said this. He said, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration instead... This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer is the law of God something that's outside of us that we live up to. It's inside of us and we live out of it. It's in us. His spirit is in us. He's bearing the fruit that comes from his life in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The law is not against such things. And Paul, by saying that, by tagging that on the end, he's saying these things are the very spirit of the law to begin with. The deeds of the flesh, they're, they're incongruent with the kingdom of God, but these are the things that flow out of the kingdom of God. And so it comes full circle. We are freed from the law so that we can be free to walk in the Spirit who transforms our character into the character of Christ, the character, very character of God, which is the very character that the law was based on to begin with. And when that happens, the commands of God that once condemned us become his promises to us, where once we read, thou shalt not steal. Now it says, you will not steal because the Spirit of God is within you, and as you walk in the Spirit of God, you will not steal. You will not commit, thou shalt not commit adultery becomes, you will not commit adultery because as you walk in the spirit and he's transforming your character, that you have the spirit of Christ in you and Christ would not commit adultery, so you will not commit adultery. See, the commands of God that once condemned us become his promises. So we wanna begin to win the war with sin. We have to understand our freedom what it is that he's bought for us. That it's no longer about our effort to be righteous before him. It's no longer about sitting and just trying to hold out and not eat the marshmallow that's on the plate in front of us. It's that now we live in freedom and we can actively pursue his will. Live a life of love that's produced as we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Not in license and in the things that please us, but in the liberty to bear the fruit of his life in us. So we need to stop worrying so much about behave. We need to worry about be his. Be in him. Be lost in him. I will put my spirit in them, he says. I will be their God and they will be my people. A holy people to the Lord. We pray.